Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hi, everyone. My name is Mike Tabliss. I am presenting on the topic of taking off the gloves, what to expect in U.S. tax court. Um, just a little bit about me. I specialize in two areas of the law. Um, I do criminal defense as well as um, tax practice. And uh, over the last several years, I've had the uh, unique opportunity to uh, appear in tax court on some cases, and as well as uh, dealing with um, normal, everyday uh, tax disputes between taxpayers and the IRS. Uh, so I've had uh, a lot of experience in this arena. Um, I've also done a lot of cases for U.S. expats living abroad um, as far as coming into compliance with their uh, U.S. tax obligations. Uh, so I'm familiar with the IRS's Offshore Voluntary Disclosure Program, as well as the Streamline Procedures, um, and those tend to be the areas that um, I focus on the most, as well as uh, foreign asset um, uh, reporting and compliance um, for uh, for all of the um, international tax forms that the IRS has in place. If you ever have any questions, I'm more than happy to chat with you about that. Uh, this presentation is on what to expect in U.S. tax court. Uh, so I figured a good way to start here was to um, examine the structure of the tax court. It's an Article I court, not an Article III court. Um, it's largely, largely self-governing. Uh, there are 19 tax court judges that are appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate, each for a 15-year term. Uh, the chief judge of the tax court can appoint uh, what are called special trial judges to hear small tax cases, um, which are basically defined as those under a specified dollar amount, as well as any case assigned to them by the chief judge. The tax court is based in Washington, D.C., but uh, the judges travel to hear cases on regular calendars in various cities around the country. Um, so you might find that um, you have a case in New York, and over the course of maybe a three-week period, the tax court will be in session in New York City in um, a location in Midtown for uh, that period and perhaps uh, your case has been calendared to be heard during that period. At trial, the taxpayer uh, can be represented by anyone admitted to practice before the tax court. It doesn't necessarily mean that the representative has to be an attorney. Um, it can include non-attorneys who have passed an exam. The IRS is represented in tax court by attorneys from the IRS Chief Counsel's Office. The U.S. Tax Court applies the rules of evidence applicable in trials without a jury in the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia. Uh, so those are the governing rules of evidence. Um, the uh, rules that apply in U.S. District Court without a jury in the U.S. District Court of Columbia. The tax court follows its own procedural rules. Uh, so it is very important to be familiar with the specific procedural rules of tax court as well as those evidential rules that apply in the U.S. District Court of Columbia without a jury. 
Um, otherwise, it can be a rude awakening when it comes to making objections and um, dealing with the normal everyday evidential issues that come up in the course of a trial. Um, it's actually difficult sometimes if you appear in the uh, state courts to, uh, be, to practice in the tax court because um, you might think that you are on top of the rules of evidence and you are insofar as your uh, home state is concerned, but when it comes to tax court, uh, like I said, it's a very unique breed of uh, evidential rules as well as court procedures. After the case has been submitted, the tax court makes a report in the form of an opinion. Uh, this decision is the U.S. tax court's equivalent of a judgment in the federal district court in the sense that it closes the case and is the action from which an appeal is taken. Um, so again, the case is submitted, the tax court makes a report, and that report comes in the form of an opinion. Uh, sometimes the judges will reserve on uh, the opinion and on the decision, and um, in that case, the taxpayer has to wait a couple of weeks uh, or perhaps a little bit longer until the tax court issues its opinion. And again, this would be, this decision would be uh, from which uh, an appeal is taken because it's the equivalent of a judgment in the federal district court. The tax court issues three types of opinions. Uh, there is a division opinion, there's a memorandum opinion, and then there is what's called summary opinions in small tax cases. Small tax cases, um, as opposed to large tax cases, are a special kind of case that is under a certain uh, dollar amount. We'll get into that shortly. Division opinions. Um, and so what I'm going to do here is just give a general overview of each of these three types of opinions beginning with division opinions. Division opinions have precedential value and are officially published. The, they are the tax court's first um, pronouncement on a question of law. Uh, they are court-reviewed cases. Uh, the chief judge can refer a division opinion for review by the entire court. This means that the tax court judges can reconsider the case in conference after reviewing the written record. These opinions are labeled reviewed by the court. Memorandum opinions. These have no official precedential value but are privately published. They apply clear law to new facts. Summary opinions in small tax cases. These have no precedential value whatsoever, but are privately published. Now, the chief judge decides whether to issue a decision as a division opinion or as a memorandum opinion. Uh, there are uh, decisions that are stipulated, and those are when the taxpayer and the IRS settle a case after it is docketed with the tax court. Um, basically, this settlement is what is coined the stipulated decision uh, because both sides have agreed to it. And the settlement is entered by the court as a stipulated decision. Then there are those where there is no voluntary dismissal. Um, in those cases, the taxpayer commences a case in tax court. Only the court can remove the case from its jurisdiction. 
An appeal from a tax court decision is taken by filing the notice of appeal with the tax court within 90 days of the decision. Um, in the world of tax law, these deadlines are hard and fast deadlines. There are no exceptions whatsoever. Um, so oftentimes when I um, find a looming deadline or when I am notified of a deadline based on the filing of something, uh, what I uh, do immediately is I place in my calendar the date in which um, something, the date in which I have to uh, file something or take an appeal. And that's because if you wait past the deadline, your appeal rights will lapse. Um, so these time frames are hard and fast. And like I said, I cannot emphasize enough that if you miss them, then it's too late to file um, you know, the, uh, the necessary um, action that you had intended. Uh, so that's why it is so important to get these uh, noted in your <clears throat> daily planner. Appellate venue. The tax court appeals are taken to the Court of Appeals for the circuit in which the taxpayer resided at the time he filed the tax court petition. That's huge, and that's going to have ripple effects on a number of things that come up. In fact, um, one of the things that comes to mind right away is the governing law. Um, of course, when you are um, representing a client, you know you want to research the law diligently so that you um, you have a you know as clear a picture of your chances on this uh, particular issue rather than taking a haphazard approach or a scattershot approach. So it's very important to recognize you know where the appeal would be taken if you lose in the US tax court and again um, it, they are taken to the Court of Appeals for the circuit in which the taxpayer resided at the time he filed the tax court petition so obviously you want to look to um, the case law on the issue that you are raising in that specific circuit um, because, like I said, if you were to lose in U.S. tax court, that would be the circuit in which the appeal is taken. Um, and again, it's the circuit um, in which the taxpayer resided at the time he filed the tax court petition. Um, so this is very important because an argument can be made that, you know, if you have, if the case law is um, square against you, um, in the Circuit Court of Appeals where an appeal would be taken, uh, which is, of course, where the taxpayer resided at the time he filed the petition, then, you know, an argument can be made later on by your client that, you know, they got bad advice if you uh, went forward with filing the tax court petition um, just to find out, you know, later on in the Circuit Court of Appeals that it was a losing issue. So you have to do a lot of research up front and um, know what the case law is and what the precedent is for that issue or those issues in the Circuit Court of Appeals before even filing the tax court petition. Appeals of tax court decisions. Um, appeal of fewer than all tax years. Uh, the issue here is uh, does a court of appeals have jurisdiction over a matter in which certain tax years have been disposed of by the tax court and appealed while others remain undecided? 
Um, in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, the rule is that a judgment disposing of less than all claims is not appealable unless it is accompanied by a determination that the order is final and there is no just reason to delay. Um, so that is very important to recognize that a judgment disposing of less than all claims. So let's say, for example, we're dealing with five claims. A judgment um, disposing of, say, three of those claims um, is not appealable unless it is accompanied by a determination that the order is final and there is no just reason to delay. Deference to tax court decisions. Review of tax court decisions are comparable to review of district court decisions. And uh, this is language that I've taken directly from um, cases. Um, it states, quote, the U.S. Court of Appeals has exclusive jurisdiction to review the decisions of the tax court in the same manner and to the same extent as decisions of the district courts in civil actions tried without a jury. Um, so again, this just emphasizes again um, the fact that the U.S. Court of Appeals is um, the last stop and is the um, uh, court that has exclusive unfettered jurisdiction to review the decisions of the tax court. Um, now, Congress did not repeal the predecessor of Code Section 7482C1, which suggests that appellate courts do not have the power to modify or reverse the tax court's findings of fact, which is interesting right now because what that is saying is that the judge in the tax court um, is the one, of course, who makes the findings during the course of a trial. And what this is saying is that the appellate courts do not have the power to um, modify, amend, or disagree with the uh, tax court judge's findings of fact. Uh, those facts basically become um, the black letter, um, the black letter uh, facts of the case. There's no room for um, that uh, the the circuit court of appeals to um, disagree, quarrel, or change the factual findings of the trial court judge in the tax court. Now, U.S. tax court has jurisdiction over the following. They have jurisdiction over cases involving tax deficiencies. They have jurisdiction over overpayment claims, jurisdiction over declaratory judgment actions. They have jurisdiction over disclosure actions. They have jurisdiction over actions for relief of joint and several liability. And finally, they have jurisdiction over collection due process cases, which are sometimes referred to as lien and levy actions. So let's talk a little bit about procedure. How do we get into the tax court? Well, the most uh, recognized way is through what's called a notice of deficiency. A notice of deficiency is the taxpayer's ticket to tax court jurisdiction. Um, and I liken it to basically a ticket to a sporting event or to an opera or to a um, to the movie theater. Um, it's what gets the taxpayer into tax court. 
uh, tax court jurisdiction over federal tax deficiencies is based on a notice of deficiency which is mailed by the IRS to the taxpayer. So let's uh, quickly talk about the definition of deficiency. Um, the definition of deficiency is very simply the taxpayer's correct tax liability, and by correct tax liability I'm referring to as determined by the IRS, minus the amount reported by the taxpayer on their return. Once again, deficiency is defined uh, very specifically as a taxpayer's correct tax liability as determined by the IRS minus the amount reported on the return. The notice, um, the determination and expl explanation. Uh, basically, uh, there are requirements. And the first requirement is that it describe the basis for and identify the amounts, if any, of the tax due, interest, additional amounts, additions to the tax, and assessable penalties included in the notice. Um, so it's not as, how can I put this? It's not a very thorough um, and detailed um, determination and explanation. It's more of like a bare bones determination and explanation, uh, yet it has to describe these uh, bare bone elements. And again, those consist of the basis for, and the and it identifies the amounts, if any, of the tax due, interest, additional amounts, additions to the tax, and assessable penalties. Those are the bare bone requirements of a notice of deficiency. Procedural requirements. Date to file a petition. The 1998 Restructuring Act imposes a requirement that the notice of deficiency state the latest date for the taxpayer to file the tax court petition. Courts have held that the IRS's failure to meet this requirement does not render the notice of deficiency fatally defective. So a taxpayer who receives a notice within the 90-day period that does not contain the latest date to file the petition must still file the petition timely. Um, so it's almost like a recommendation and uh, suffice to say there's really no teeth in it because as I, as I said, if the date um, is not contained on the notice and by date I'm referring to um, the uh, latest date in which the taxpayer has to file the um, tax court petition, even if that's lacking and it's not contained in the notice of deficiency, the taxpayer still has an obligation to file the petition timely. Um, so it's, like I said, a recommendation um, that uh, the IRS um, list that date on the notice of deficiency, but again, it uh, it doesn't render the notice of deficiency defective if it's lacking the date. Notice of Taxpayer Advocate's Office. The notice of deficiency uh, should advise the taxpayer of the right to contact the Taxpayer Advocate's Office and the location and the phone number of that office. Last known address requirement. The notice must be sent to the taxpayer's last known address. 
the code does not require the taxpayer to actually receive the notice of deficiency because it would be virtually impossible when you come to think about it for the commissioner to prove that the taxpayer actually received it. Um, the requirement instead is that the notice be sent to the taxpayer's last known address to the extent that the IRS can prove that the taxpayer's last known address was, I don't know, 151 um, Gordonhurst Avenue. That's sufficient um, alone for the address requirement. Uh, why is the last known address requirement so important? Well, if the taxpayer doesn't receive the notice or receives it late, then he or she cannot file a petition in the U.S. tax court. And the legal predicate to a prepayment remedy will fail because the IRS will then assess and require payment because no petition was filed uh, to continue the uh, prohibition on assessment. Um, so basically, assessment is when things, um, when it's, when, uh, when the IRS has uh, made a claim to a certain deficiency amount and the taxpayer has failed to file a petition in the U.S. tax court within the 90-day uh, period, uh, the IRS can file or, or can um, do what's called an assessment. And once an assessment is made by the IRS, um, there are virtually no uh, rights left to the taxpayer to contest the deficiency. The deficiency is basically, um, for all intents and purposes, um, you know, uh, done and decided upon. And like I said, there are no due process rights left for a taxpayer to challenge that deficiency. That's why this last known address requirement is so critical because, as I said, um, without receiving a notice of deficiency, the taxpayer, without receiving the notice um, of deficiency, the taxpayer basically can't file the petition um, because the notice of deficiency is a taxpayer's uh, ticket to the tax court. And so that's why the courts um, do treat this notice and the address requirement as um, as seriously as they do because they realize that a taxpayer who doesn't receive no, the notice of deficiency has no way to um, file in the tax court and to uh, challenge the deficiency. And like I said, after the 90-day period expires, uh, the IRS can assess the amount, that amount, and then it uh, basically will go to collections. Courts require the IRS to check its most recent computer records to determine the last known address. Generally, the last known address is the address on the taxpayer's latest properly filed and processable tax return. There is an exception to invalidity of improperly addressed notice of deficiencies. Even if the address fails, the last known address requirement, if the taxpayer actually receives the notice within a sufficient time to petition the tax court, then the notice of deficiency is still valid. So that is, uh, that's pretty significant here um, where, you know, the courts uh, have come down on you know, um, on favoring the IRS here because, uh, like I said, they're stating that um, even if the IRS got the address wrong and it fails the last known address requirement, 
Um, but the taxpayer still receives the notice within a sufficient time to petition the tax court, it's valid. That notice of deficiency is still valid. So, you know, it's very important when you get on the phone with a client um, who has received a notice of deficiency, one of the first questions you want to ask them is what is the date? Um, And usually it's in the top corner of the uh, deficiency notice. Uh, where you ask them what is the date upon which the deficiency where upon which you have to file the petition in tax court and uh, usually it will have such a date Um, and you have to plan for all these other contingencies um, whereby you know even if the client says that they just received the notice yesterday or two days ago you can't assume that that means that they have 88 days left to petition the tax court because as we all know with the mail you know that mail could have taken an extenuating extenuating amount of time to um, get to the taxpayer's home or there could have been an issue where it went to the went to one address that was incorrect and then you know uh, through mail forwarding finally arrived at the client's house but like i said if it fails the known address the less known address requirement but the taxpayer actually receives it within sufficient time to petition then that notice of deficiency is still valid and the taxpayer would have to still file the petition within the 90-day period so you could be up in a you could be up against the clock where the taxpayer contacts you and lo and behold it's the 85th day and then you are in a position where if you're retained you're going to need to file that petition within you know five days time frame to meet the 90-day deadline Explanation of the basis for the deficiency. Um, Deficiency notices must describe the basis for the deficiency. But, you know, and this is the thing, like, you know, the courts, you know, are requiring very specific things here, but they don't put teeth in them because as I'm about to um, read to you here, Uh, Even though a deficiency notice must describe the basis for the deficiency, courts have held that a failure to do so will not invalidate it. Um, So it's very difficult to enforce this if if there's nothing for the IRS to feel, if there's no repercussions that come from a deficiency notice containing an inadequate basis for the deficiency. Um, You know, as I said here, failure to... Uh, failure to um, describe the basis for the deficiency on the deficiency notice doesn't invalidate it. The taxpayer does have a statutory right to the information in the notice of deficiency, but no statutory remedy if he does not receive it in the notice. Consequences of the invalidity of the notice. If the notice of deficiency is invalid or never sent for any reason, any assessment requiring a notice as a predicate is likewise invalid. In other words, the taxpayer can assert that a subsequent assessment is invalid. Prohibition on assessment. Um, if Let's assume that the taxpayer decides to litigate in tax court. There will be no assessment made while litigation in the tax court is pending. So while the case is docketed in tax court and while the taxpayer 
and his or her attorney or other counsel is appearing in tax court, the IRS is prohibited from making an assessment on any deficiency. If the taxpayer does not litigate in the tax court, the IRS will make the assessment after the 90-day period expires. So assume that the, assuming that a taxpayer gets a notice of deficiency, has no interest whatsoever in um, challenging that deficiency, um, the IRS will still not make an assessment until after the 90-day period expires because it's almost as if they default to an assumption that the taxpayer is going to file a petition in the tax court. So no assessment can be made um, before the expiration of the 90 days. So let's talk now a little bit about the tax court pleading requirements. To initiate litigation, the taxpayer has to file a petition with the tax court for a redetermination of the deficiency. Now, contrary to uh, conventional wisdom, the taxpayer does not have to pay the amount in dispute in order to obtain tax court jurisdiction. That's actually significant because in some other uh, forums, other courts, uh, the taxpayer actually has to pay the amount in dispute before they can gain access to the courts. Here, it's different. The taxpayer is under no obligation whatsoever to pay the amount in dispute in order to uh, get jurisdiction to the tax court. The taxpayer can also claim in the petition a refund of an overpayment. So not only does a taxpayer have the right to uh, plead a redetermination of the deficiency, but the taxpayer also has the right to petition for a refund of an overpayment. Now, if a taxpayer is only filing a claim for refund and there is no deficiency involved, then the taxpayer must file that refund claim in federal district court. Um, he cannot merely file a refund claim in the U.S. tax court. The only time that a refund claim is permitted is if there is a uh, challenge to the deficiency. The petition is a notice pleading that should be a summary statement to fairly notify the IRS as to the matters that the taxpayer is disputing. The tax court rules provide a checklist of the matters the petition should contain. And here's basically a checklist for you. Um, the first item is a copy of the notice of deficiency or notice of determination. The second is a statement of the taxpayer identification number. The third is a request for a place of trial. And the fourth is a filing fee. Um, and the filing fee usually um, increases every, um, every few years. Um, the last time I looked, it was a $60 filing fee, um, but it might be different. So you always want to check the tax court uh, website. Tax court rules protect the taxpayer privacy by excluding, excluding from the public record a taxpayer's social security number or EIN, employer identification number, and other private information. The court serves a petition on the commissioner. The commissioner must file an answer within 60 days. The purpose of the answer is to notify the taxpayer which of the issues raised in the petition are in dispute. 
the taxpayer must file a reply to matters raised in the commissioner's answer as to which the commissioner bears the burden of proof. So that's the dance, basically. Um, the, fi the taxpayer files a petition. The court serves a petition on the commissioner. The commissioner then files an answer within a 60-day period. In that answer, the commissioner notifies a taxpayer which issues raised in the petition are in dispute. Um, in some cases, um, there are issues that the IRS may just uh, stipulate to and not dispute. Um, and so this, these pleading requirements and this dance, so to speak, helps uh, to narrow down the issues that the, that, are going, that the judge is going to have to decide at a trial. The taxpayer, after receiving the IRS's answer, has to file a reply to the matters raised in the commissioner's answers. Um, and those uh, that the taxpayer must file a reply to um, are the ones in which the commissioner has raised in his answer and also uh, bears the burden of proof on. A tax court case will be dismissed if the taxpayer is sent a valid notice of deficiency but files his petition late. That's what I was getting at earlier in the presentation. Timelines are so important in the world of tax court. Um, you can't afford to miss one because, uh, like many lawyers will say, um, you better contact your malpractice insurance carrier if that happens. New matters. New matters raised in the answer. The IRS can raise new matters in its answer, and um, that's if two, that, that's basically in the event of two circumstances. A, um, new answer, the IRS can raise new matters in its answers that increase the amount of deficiency on a basis not originally asserted in the notice of deficiency, or B, the IRS can raise new matters in its answer that justify the deficiency asserted on some basis not asserted in the notice of deficiency. So if the IRS answers and uh, provides an alternate justification to um, one of its earlier um, one of its earlier asserted deficiencies, that is fair game. Uh, the IRS can actually add another justification or um, substitute a new justification for an old one for one of the deficiencies asserted in the notice of deficiency. Likewise, the IRS can increase the amount of the deficiency on a basis not asserted in the notice of deficiency. So be wary whenever you file a tax court petition that the answer could be a complete bombshell in the sense that the IRS now is raising new matters that the um, original notice of deficiency didn't contain and it is fair game. The IRS can seek additional taxes not previously asserted because the statute of limitations is suspended during the period the tax court case is pending. Um, and it's suspended beginning from the date the notice of deficiency is issued. Um, that's why the IRS um, can seek these additional taxes that were not previously asserted. 
um, again, because the statute of limitation is suspended during the period the tax court case is pending. And so it's very important to recognize that, um, that sometimes, um, you know, by filing the petition, uh, you can open up the floodgates because what you might otherwise have thought were just two or three issues in the notice of deficiency uh, could grow exponentially to six or seven issues based on the IRS um, now seeking additional taxes uh, that it did not previously assert in the notice. And once again, that's because the statute of limitations is suspended um, from the date the notice of deficiency is issued. Uh, so let's talk more about new matters raised after the IRS has filed its original answers. Um, so that is what distinguishes uh, this uh, part from the earlier part that I was uh, just talking about uh, regarding new matters. Now we're in a situation where um, the IRS is raising new matters after it has filed its original answer. Before we were talking about the IRS raising new matters when it files its original answer. The IRS's ability to raise new issues after its original answer is limited by rules of fairness. I know that's probably not the answer that most tax practitioners want to hear, um, because as I said, you know, what is fair? What is fair to one person might not be fair to another person. So it oftentimes turns on the interpretation of that colloquial term fairness by the courts. If the IRS asserts new matters after filing its original answer, it must amend the original answer. That's the bare bones requirement. New issues cannot be injected so late in the process that they deny the taxpayer an effective opportunity to respond. So if the IRS um, springs these new issues um, at such a late time that now we're on the eve of trial and they somehow are attempting to amend their original answer to include these new issues, uh, suffice to say, I don't think many courts would find that that was fair. If anything, I think they'd find that this was an ambush and that the IRS um, should be prohibited uh, from being able to introduce these new issues because of how late uh, they are uh, doing so. The IRS bears a burden of proof with respect to new matters. New theories or grounds are not new matters. Um, so what's good for the goose here should be good for the gander. Um, taxpayer um, can also raise new issues. Um, however, if he does so, he will carry the burden. Um, so one thing that's interesting here is that, you know, this would give you as a tax practitioner uh, the ability to change a theory or a ground um, as close to, you know, um, right before the start of a trial uh, because they're not new matters. Um, and so the taxpayer has the ability to uh, raise these new issues. Um, but you have to distinguish, you know, what are new issues from new theories or, or grounds or what are new matters from what are new theories or grounds. Um, as I said, new theories or grounds can be changed um, you know, organically throughout the course 
of a case and oftentimes do change um, as the tax practitioner learns more about the case and gets um, to be more familiar with the law and uh, the potential uh, evidence that's going to be introduced. Uh, so it's not unusual for a theory or ground to change. Uh, when we get into new issues, however, uh, we have to be aware that you know they uh, that they can be raised, but the taxpayer will carry the burden just like the IRS does. Now, how about discovery in tax court? This raises an interesting issue. Um, discovery is more limited in tax court than in the federal district courts. And anybody who practices in the federal district courts knows that it can be pretty flimsy, um, uh, even in a criminal case, which is sad uh, because in most state courts, um, criminal cases have very broad discovery rules. And uh, we oftentimes like to use the expression that a defendant is entitled to everything, um, including uh, the kitchen sink. Um, so once, you know, once, and you can quote the uh, state court rules uh, for supporting that position, and that's very common in uh, most of the state courts. But in federal district courts, discovery tends to be more limited. Uh, there are some wonderful opinions that uh, have been decided over the last several decades that do broaden uh, the scope of discovery in criminal cases. Um, however, I have heard and I've been a witness to situations in which a special agent's report is turned over you know, a day before or on the very day that he or she is testifying. And um, there's no obligation to actually uh, turn that over um, in a more timely manner. So it's oftentimes comes down to trial by ambush. Um, and so there's a lot of a lot of issues that go into the discovery process. Um, so I guess all of this I'm going to circle back to say is that when you when I hear something about how discovery is more limited in tax court than in the federal district courts, it makes me um, it, it it makes me cringe because, as we already know now, the discovery in the federal district court can be somewhat limited, um, even in a criminal case where a person's freedom is at um, is at issue. So this is unnerving, at uh, to say the very least. There's a rule called the Brannerton rule. Uh, what that means is that interrogatories and other discovery procedures, such as requests for admissions and depositions, are available in tax court. However, they are available only if necessary after the parties have conducted discovery through informal means. So what has to happen um, is that the parties must make a an effort to conduct discovery through informal means, which can be by letter um, and, or by picking up the phone and contacting, you know, um, the your adversary, which if you're the tax practitioner would be the IRS. Um, but a reasonable effort has to be made to conduct discovery through informal means before you can resort to interrogatories and other discovery procedures like um, depositions. Uh, but they are available in tax court, so um, it's not, uh, you know, it, it's not prohibiting um, the normal uh, discovery procedures that exist in virtually every civil case. 
Letters making an informal request for information or for a conference to communicate informally have become known as Brannerton letters. Now, the tax court relies heavily on stipulation of facts. Um, you might that you might have uh, come to that conclusion on your own after I was talking earlier about how the tax court really looks to refine the issues that are in dispute um, in a tax controversy. Um, and that starts as early as the um, answer um, that is, um, and the petition for that matter. Um, you know, the taxpayer has an obligation to state with some degree of particularity uh, what, um, you know, he or she is challenging in the redetermination of the deficiency. Um, so there, the, the, the tax court seeks to refine the issues as early in the course of this, um, uh, as early in the course of a shelf life of a case as possible. Um, and, that's be, and that's because the court relies heavily on the stipulation of facts. Um, time is very precious, and the tax court um, wants to narrow down the issues and know which ones are in dispute and which, one are, which ones are agreed to. The ones that are in dispute will become the focus in the trial, um, and those narrow issues will be what um, the judge is called to make rulings and decisions on. Stipulations represent the party's agreement as to the facts and the law in the case. So by stipulations, it's a twofold um, inquiry, and that is an agreement as to the facts and an agreement as to the law. Parties to a tax court case are required to stipulate to the facts to the fullest extent possible. This includes stipulations of the evidence so that key documents such as tax returns typically are attached to the stipulation of facts as exhibits. A party may move to compel the other party to stipulate, however, that, um, motion, that a motion must be filed no later than 45 days before trial for it to be dealt with. Each party must submit a short pretrial memo alerting the court as to the general issues to be tried and any problems that the party anticipates to develop um, at trial. And usually the way I draft mine is if I can see certain evidential issue uh, coming up as uh, problematic, meaning that um, my adversary, chief counsel, is going to take a um, differing view of the, um, of the admissibility of this piece of evidence, then um, that would be something that I put the court on notice of, that there's an evidential issue, perhaps regarding um, this, uh, the admissibility of this piece of evidence or the admissibility of this witness's testimony. Um, and again, I would state that in advance in my pretrial memo to put the court on notice. Uh, so that a uh, potential pretrial motion uh, can be heard before the trial starts. Uh, it becomes difficult, and you don't want to catch the ire of the judge by an issue like this coming up um, in once the trial has started, because then um, you know uh, the trial has to stop while the uh, judge hears the oral argument uh, regarding the evidential issue and makes a ruling. Um, and so, like I said, to the extent 
um, possible. And obviously, you can't anticipate every single issue that's going to come up. But to the extent that it's practicable, you want to put the court on notice of these evidential issues so that they can be heard in advance of the trial. Briefing. At the end of the trial, the judge will set a briefing schedule for the parties and take the case under advisement. The briefing will include detailed proposed findings of fact and legal arguments. And uh, those, of course, would come from the tax practitioner, and then they would, uh, you know, they would come from IRS chief counsel's office. And again, they are in um, the format of a brief. Precedent applicable to tax court cases. The issue here is what legal precedent applies in tax court cases. Tax court precedent or court of appeals precedent? The bright line rule states that tax court cases are appealable to the court of appeals for the circuit in which the taxpayer resided at the time he filed his tax court petition. We discussed that at the very beginning of the presentation. Now, under a case called Golson, spelled G-O-L-S-E-N, the court held that if that circuit has precedence squarely on point, then that precedent applies in tax court and the tax court decision would be constrained by that circuit court's binding precedent. So here's what that's saying. To the extent that the circuit court of appeals um, for the circuit in which an appeal would be taken has case law that is squarely on point to the issue that is, that is being raised in tax court, then that precedent would apply in tax court. And the tax court decision would um, have to follow that circuit court's binding precedent. So if you work backwards here as the tax practitioner, what you'd want to do when a client comes into your office with an issue is you want to do research on the case law for the circuit court where an appeal would be taken to if you lose in tax court. That's for the simple reason that if, the, if that circuit court of appeals has precedent that is squarely on point to the issue that your client has, then that will be the governing case law in the U.S. tax court, the, the, the court where you will be litigating this action. Um, so you better do your due diligence up front and know whether A, the Circuit Court of Appeals where an appeal would be taken has case law and precedent, uh, rather precedent, that's squarely on point. And if it does, what impact does that have on your client's issue? Does the precedent of that Circuit Court of Appeals agree with your position or is it squarely in opposite to your position? Because if it's squarely in opposite to your position, you better let your client know and you better let him or her know soon. 
because that's going to be the law that the tax court judge applies. And similarly, if you lose in tax court and you decide to take an appeal, although there would be obviously no uh, reason to do so, um, but if you have circuit court of appeal precedent that's squarely in opposite to your position, and for some reason after losing in tax court, you decide to appeal it, it's going to be deja vu all over again because uh, if the precedent is squarely against your position, then you're going to lose in the Circuit Court of Appeals as well. So all I'm saying is here is that you've got to do your due diligence, find out if the Circuit Court of Appeals has a precedent squarely on point, and then find out how that squares or doesn't square with your client's issue. And then let your client know. Let your client know if there's case law squarely on point and it's against your client's position, then you better let him or her know because that obviously is going to impact whether he files a petition in the tax court in the first place. Um, you won't have a problem if there is precedent that's not on point to the issue that is being raised um, in your petition. However, that lends itself to a whole nother a um, uh, whole nother uh, set of um, issues um, because obviously, you know, if the Circuit Court of Appeals doesn't have precedent on that issue, then you're going to be looking to other circuits to determine, you know, uh, what their positions are to see how you can strengthen your argument or how strong your argument would be relying upon uh, cases and precedent in other circuits. So this just goes to speak on how um, much effort and work in advance must be put in to um, make sure that your client is as well informed as he or she possibly can. Because these actions cost a lot of money. Um, you know, it's not unusual for a client to pay, you know, a retainer you know, um, in excess of $25,000 um, to uh, retain private counsel, you know, to represent him or her in tax court. So there's a lot at stake here, not to mention the fact that there's a deficiency. So you can imagine how dissatisfied a client's going to be if, they, if you take that sum of money from him or her, go to the tax court, lose in the tax court, then you've got a client who's out of pocket your um cost of representation plus has to pay the deficiency. And perhaps if the IRS raises new issues uh, in its answer, uh, that might increase the deficiency amounts that was originally uh, that was originally um, you know uh, asserted in the original notice of deficiency. So there's a lot at stake here and you don't want to ever put yourself in a position where, a client uh, could come back and file some, you know, file an action against you for malpractice. So the net effect of the Golson rule is that if two similar cases are governed by conflicting court of appeals precedent, Golson allows the possibility of inconsistent tax court decisions. Once again, if two similar cases are governed by conflicting court of appeals precedent, Golson allows a possibility of inconsistent tax court decisions. Because once again, we are looking at the Circuit Court of Appeals for the circuit in which the taxpayer resided at the time he filed his tax court petition. 
and that is what governs the tax court's decision. Um, and because Circuit Court of Appeals, um, you know, may uh, may have conflicting precedent regarding a specific issue, it's not unusual for two similar cases to come out with two different outcomes if the um, if we're dealing with um, if we're dealing with two uh, if we're dealing with tax courts that happen to be in two different circuit courts of appeals with two conflicting court of appeals precedent. Issue number two, what if the circuit of the taxpayer's residence does not have legal precedent squarely on point? This is interesting because the Golston rule permits the tax court to follow its own precedent despite contrary precedent in other circuits. Um, so it's radically different to the position that some court of appeals take that in the absence of that circuit court having spoken on the issue, that court should give respectful consideration to other circuits' decisions because of the importance of uniformity. What this is saying is um, to hell with what um, other precedent has come out of other circuit court of appeals. To hell with that. If the circuit court of appeals um, hasn't spoken on an issue that is being pled in the taxpayer's pleading, then the tax court could follow its own precedent. And again, that's contrary to conventional wisdom because as an attorney, my first reaction to, oh, there's no circuit court of appeal precedent on this issue. So I'm going to look to other circuit court of appeals to find out where they've come down, if they've come down on this issue. And, you know, maybe I can find three or four other circuits that have um, law or precedent that favors my client's position. And then I can argue those other circuits um, that, that, that the precedent of those other circuits should apply in this one. And what this Golson rule is saying is that, wait a second, if the tax court has precedent on this issue, then the tax court could follow its own precedent, despite the fact that you might find four other circuit court of appeals that have um, precedent on this matter and that are square with your position. So this has radical radical implications when you're representing a client. Um, you have to be very, very, very diligent about your research here. And once again, um, the Court of Appeals or the tax court could have uh, as its own precedent some precedent that is radically different than the precedent of like four or five other Court of Appeals. But, but in the absence of that circuit court having spoken on the issue, um, the tax court uh, precedent would apply um, if they have precedent that's squarely on point to the issue, and even if it diverges and is inconsistent with the precedent of four or five other circuit courts. So your strategy in deciding whether the tax court is a favorable or unfavorable forum you as the tax practitioner must look not only to the precedent of the tax court, but also to the precedent of the court of appeals to which an appeal may be taken.
which is where the where the taxpayer resided at the time he filed his petition. Unfavorable tax court precedent, but favorable appellate court precedent will produce um, a winner in the tax court uh, to the extent that the appellate court has precedent um, and it is uh, squarely in, uh, in, in, in your favor, um, then that would be uh, a winner for you in the tax court. Tax court small tax case procedure. It's an elective informal procedure for cases involving relatively small amounts of money. For deficiency cases, this small tax procedure is available if neither the deficiency placed in dispute nor any claimed overpayment exceeds 50000 for any one taxable year. Once again, for deficiency cases, a small tax procedure is available if neither the deficiency placed in dispute nor any claimed overpayment exceeds 50000 for any one taxable year. Obtaining eligibility to elect the small tax case procedure in deficiency cases. The taxpayer can concede or um, can concede basically amounts that exceed the jurisdictional cap. That is significant here. Uh, so what that means is that if a notice of deficiency reflects a deficiency of fifty-five thousand, the taxpayer can concede five thousand of it in order to work that deficiency amount to fifty thousand, so that they can. Uh, then elect the small tax case procedure. So again, the threshold is fifty thousand. Um, it uh, the small tax case procedure um, cannot. Uh, it, it's available um, to the extent that the deficiency placed in dispute um, does not exceed fifty thousand. So if we have a deficiency that reflects. Uh, 55000 as I said, the taxpayer can concede 5000 meaning take full responsibility for it, and still have the case be heard under the small tax case procedure because he has now got it whittled down to $50,000, which is the cap for a small tax case procedure case. The taxpayer has the option to elect the small tax case procedure so long as the tax court agrees. The tax court will agree to the designation as a small tax case unless the case involves a recurring issue for which precedent is needed. So let's talk about the differences between S cases and regular cases. There, the, the first difference is that there is no appeal from an S case. Um, and again, by S case, I'm referring to the small tax case procedure. It's just a mnemonic that, um, that they've come up with. Once again, there's no appeal from an S case. Second, S case opinions have no precedential value. Third, S cases are conducted more informally than regular cases. The federal rules of evidence do not apply in S cases. Fourth, the tax court travels on a regular basis to more cities to hear these S cases than it does to hear regular cases. Calendar calls. Um, basically, the clerk of the court will call a case for entry of appearance. If the taxpayer doesn't show up, the IRS attorney will move for entry of a dismissal 
for failure of prosecution. The tax court judge may then ask the IRS attorney to reach out for the taxpayer once more to protect him and his rights. Most judges will bend over backwards to make the taxpayer aware that he has a right to be there. But nonetheless, the risk is uh, significant that if the taxpayer doesn't show up, an IRS chief counsel attorney will move for entry of dismissal, which means that that would end the case. Um, so very important um, if you've been retained to represent a taxpayer that um, he or she appears. Um, and of course, there are exceptions. Um, you know, at the first appearance, though, I wouldn't think of coming in without my client being present, unless, of course, the client, um, you know, is an expat or is outside of the country for, you know, work-related obligations or family obligations. I would, at all costs, want him or her to be present. Um, if uh, conflicts come up at future calendar calls. Um, regarding a client being present, then that would be something that I'd raise as far in advance as possible so that the judge knows and um, you know might be willing to excuse the client. Most of the time, the tax court judge will grant the IRS's motion to dismiss a case for lack of prosecution and then issue an assessment. That's the draconian uh, result because, like I said, once an assessment is made, it becomes impossible for the IRS to challenge the underlying deficiency. Uh, that ship has sailed, and it's now too late um, once the assessment is made. Then we're basically talking about collections issues. Penalties. Sometimes there will be a formal trial just on this issue alone. For example, if the taxpayer fails to appear and the tax court judge grants the IRS's motion to dismiss the case, the next issue is the issue of penalties. A trial for penalties can be held regardless of whether the taxpayer is present. In other words, even if the taxpayer is absent. Continuances or adjournments. Sometimes judges will grant adjournments, other times they won't. The taxpayer needs to contact the other side in advance to see if they will consent. Uh, he or she has a better chance of getting a continuance if the other side consents. It's no different than in um, other realms of the law, civil matters as well as criminal matters, um, to the extent that the other side agrees to an adjournment, then it's granted. And these are granted routinely because, um, you know, the courts uh, recognize that, um, you know, Things sometimes take time, and if they see that parties, that both sides are getting closer together um, and uh, that the case is on track to resolving, uh, I find that they are more than willing to give, um, you know, give out adjournments and give the parties more time. But, of course, um, you know, the court's patience will, um, you know, will uh, narrow at some point if they see that it's uh, not uh, that the case isn't resolving and that these are just a mere way of pushing uh, the inevitable off. Settlement. If both sides have reached a settlement by the time the case is called, that settlement can be entered during the calendar call. Review of large cases decided by special trial judges. So a controversy um, erupted over the process whereby opinions drafted by special trial judges were reviewed and adopted by the tax court as its opinion. 
Special trial judges are not empowered to enter decisions in cases involving over 50000 in dispute for any tax year. However, if a tax court judge assigned a large case to a special trial judge, that special trial judge could hear the testimony, review the exhibits, and conduct the trial. The key term here is where the tax court judge um, assigns a large case to a special trial judge. Then, the special trial judge could draft an opinion for review by a regular judge of the U.S. tax court. That opinion would contain the special trial judge's recommended findings of fact and conclusions of law. The regular tax court judge might adopt the special trial judge's opinion or make substantial revisions to it. The tax court treated the special trial judge's opinions as advisory and not as public documents. In other words, what that means is that the parties in the case were not allowed to see them, meaning they weren't entitled to see these advisory opinions that were authored by the special trial judges. The result is that the public would not know if the final opinion entered by the tax court contained any changes by the tax court regular judge. Uh, here are some facts from the Ballard case which helps cement this. Um, civil fraud was an issue in that case. The tax court judge, who did not hear any witness testimony, made credibility fact findings different than the special trial judge, who did not hear the witnesses. So basically, the tax court judge, to back up, assigned a special trial judge to take testimony and make credibility fact findings. And that's exactly what the special trial judge did. He um, heard witness testimony, made credibility fact findings. The tax court judge, on the other hand, did not hear any witness testimony, yet made credibility fact findings that were different than the ones made by the special trial judge. The special trial judge heard the witnesses, the taxpayer, the accountants, and the lawyers who advised the taxpayer, and made a finding that the taxpayer's return reporting position was not attributable to fraud. The tax court judge reviewed the bare record, including a transcript of the testimony, which of course excluded demeanor testimony, which as most trial lawyers um, are well aware is just as important, if not more, to truth-finding. And this tax court judge subsequently determined that the taxpayer's return reporting position was fraudulent. So you can see that we have two differing, uh, different findings. One made by the special trial judge that the taxpayer's return reporting position was not due to fraud, and a second made by the tax court judge who did not hear the live testimony, but reviewed the bare record and who found that the taxpayer's reporting position was fraudulent. The tax court judge changed the special trial judge's draft opinion to include that finding of fraud. Now, you can see how this is riddled with so many problems because the parties were not entitled to see the special trial judge's draft opinion. And so they had no idea, at least up until this point, that the 
uh, special trial judges uh, made made a decision that the taxpayer's return reporting position was not due to fraud. All they know is that the tax court judge, um, his, his finding included fraud. Holding, the tax court may not exclude the special trial judge's draft opinion from the record on appeal. That's huge because that gives a tax practitioner uh, representing the taxpayer the opportunity to point out that the special trial judge made a finding that was radically different than that made by the tax court judge. And I think another argument, well, I know another argument that's going to be made by the uh, taxpayer's attorney or representative is that the special trial judge had was able to, um, when he took the testimony, view the witness and observe demeanor and observe other badges of credibility that simply cannot be determined or ascertained by reading the record or reading the transcripts from the trial. And so that would speak to how the special trial judge's findings are stronger or should be weighed stronger than those of the um, of the uh, tax court judge. Uh, so there's a lot to play with here by the tax court attorney being privy to the special trial judge's draft opinion. The reasoning here is that one cannot tell whether the final decision reflects due regard for the special trial judge's opportunity to evaluate the credibility of the witnesses. Again, like I said, there's no way that the um, final decision, in my opinion, and this is going to be my uh, bent, um, you know, being a an attorney for the taxpayer, there's no way that that final decision could give respect to a special trial judge's unique opportunity to evaluate the credibility of the witnesses because the tri the, the tax court judge wasn't present and didn't take the testimony and didn't see all of these uh, all of these other issues relating to demeanor and uh, behavior of the witness that only the special trial judge was able to see as the judge who took the testimony. So for those reasons, I would argue strenuously that the special trial judge's uh, findings um, should be uh, given more weight than, what, than those made by the tax court judge. The effect here is that the parties will not know what changes, if any, are made by the regular tax court judge if they don't receive this uh, draft opinion. The tax court has changed its practice. Special trial judges report is served on the parties and they have an opportunity to file objections to it. So this case has basically led to a sea change regarding the discoverability of a special trial judge's report. The report is also included in the record on appeal. Equity in tax court. Congress amended the code to allow tax court to apply the doctrine of equitable recoupment to the same extent that it is available in civil tax cases in the federal district courts. Burden of proof. The general tax rule is that the taxpayer bears the burdens. First, the taxpayer bears the burden of persuasion as to fact issues that must be resolved in deciding a civil tax controversy. The burden of persuasion in a civil tax case means that the trier of fact, 
which is in the tax court, a judge has to find that the fact has to find the fact in issue to be more likely than not. Otherwise, the party that bears the burden of persuasion loses. Um, so these these burdens I often find are hollow and don't really mean much to me unless I have um, hypothetical in front of me with um, a set of facts. Uh, but it is good to just understand um, the general uh, the general meaning of these burdens and what they entail. Um, so to circle back here, the burden of persuasion means that the judge in tax court has to find the fact and issue to be more likely than not. Otherwise, the party that bears the burden of persuasion loses. Now, there are two categories of tax litigation. We have prepayment litigation. In tax court litigation, the IRS seeks to have the tax court enter a decision for a deficiency so that the IRS can assess a deficiency amount against the taxpayer. That is the overall objective of the chief counsel attorney. It is to have the tax court enter a decision for the deficiency because only then can IRS chief counsel then assess that deficiency amount against the taxpayer. Once an assessment is made, then the IRS is free to begin its collection um, processes. But again, a, um, the, the entry of a decision for a deficiency is the precursor to an assessment. So that's why the overall objective of chief counsel is to get the judge to enter a decision for the deficiency. So the IRS seeks a judgment against the taxpayer so that it can collect the amount of the judgment from him. Refund litigation, where the taxpayer seeks a judgment against the U.S. so that the taxpayer can get money from the United States. That's basically what refund um, it means. That's the taxpayer's goal, getting a judgment against the United States so that the taxpayer can get money back from the U.S., Refund suits assert that the government has a taxpayer's money and it's not entitled to it because a taxpayer doesn't owe the tax. Presumption of correctness. This is um, judicial, a judicial opinion that routinely pronounces that the notice of deficiency in a tax court proceeding has a presumption of correctness. There are exceptions to the general rule. There are various constitutional requirements, statutes, or court rules that assign the burden of proof differently for various policy reasons. So, for example, in a criminal case, the government has to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt, no different than in any other criminal case. For civil fraud, the IRS has to prove fraud by clear and convincing evidence. The trial judge may direct a verdict for the taxpayer if he determines that no jury could find fraud by clear and convincing evidence. And sometimes what uh, that, that happens where the counsel seeks what's called a directed verdict, uh, one where after the government has put on its case in chief, um, the attorney argues zealously and strenuously that uh, the evidence was insufficient 
to meet the burden of clear and convincing evidence, and therefore the taxpayer is entitled to what's called a directed verdict, um, meaning no reasonable jury could find fraud by the uh, clear and convincing evidence standard. Omitted income, just a fancy way of saying uh, unreported income. This is where the IRS argues that the taxpayer had income. The taxpayer argues in the alternative that he didn't. The problem is that the taxpayer has to prove a negative because, again, the taxpayer is saying that he didn't have it. Some cases hold that once the taxpayer meets some production burden, which can be a simple denial that is reasonable, the IRS must then meet at least a production burden described as a minimal evidentiary foundation by introducing evidence that, if believed, indicates that the taxpayer had the unreported income. Under this line of cases, the taxpayer still bears the normal burdens of production and persuasion once the IRS makes the required showing. So again, what we're talking about is a situation where um, the taxpayer has to meet some production burden, which can be a simple denial, uh, but nonetheless one that's reasonable. The IRS then must meet at least a production burden, which is described as a minimal evidentiary foundation, by introducing evidence that indicates that the taxpayer had the unreported income. And um, the taxpayer would still bear the normal burdens of production and persuasion once the IRS makes this threshold showing. There's a case called Portillo, um, and in that case, the taxpayer was a contractor who was hired by a general contractor. The general contractor issued the taxpayer a Form 1099 claiming an amount that was substantially greater than the amount the general contractor could produce checks um, that had been made payable to the taxpayer. The taxpayer denied that he received income in excess of the amount of the checks. The court found that the determinations had no substance because the IRS had failed to do anything other than rely upon the 1099s in the face of the taxpayer's denial of receipt of the income. Instead, the IRS had to provide the court with some indicia that the taxpayer received unreported income. So you might ask how the IRS could do that. And um, in this case, they did so by showing that the taxpayer had some income-producing source, such as the taxpayer's net worth, uh, bank deposits, cash expenditures, or source and application of funds. Um, there is, um, in Section 7491, what's called a real or phantom shift. Um, this is basically, uh, this was um, established in the 1998 Restructuring Act that added Section 7491 to provide three key shifts of the burden of proof to the IRS. And these three shifts occur in one, when the taxpayer has done what's right, and secondly, in statistical cases, and third, in penalty cases. So in a situation where the taxpayer has done what's right, the burden of persuasion will be on the IRS if um, these three requirements exist. First, the taxpayer introduces credible evidence to support his position. 
on the fact and issue. Second, the taxpayer has maintained the required records with respect to the matter and has cooperated during the audit. And third, the taxpayer has complied with any specific requirements of the code that he substantiate an item. So what does it mean for the taxpayer to introduce credible evidence to support his position on a fact and issue? What we're talking about here is not just evidence, but credible evidence. That is evidence which a court would find sufficient to base a decision on the issue if no contrary evidence were submitted. The taxpayer has not produced credible evidence if he merely makes implausible factual assertions, frivolous claims, or tax protester-type arguments. Similarly, if similarly uncontra uncontradicted testimony, which the trier of fact does not find credible, is not the quality of evidence required to shift the burden of proof. What about the next requirement that the taxpayer has maintained the required records with respect to the matter and has cooperated during the audit? Well, what that means simply is that the taxpayer must have cooperated with reasonable requests by the IRS for meetings, interviews, witnesses, information, and documents, including providing access to and inspection of witnesses, information, and documents within the taxpayer's control. Essentially, the taxpayer must have exhausted his administrative remedies. Statistical. This is basically where the IRS has the burden of proof with respect to income items, which the IRS proves solely through the use of statistical data from unrelated taxpayers. Um, a general rule here is that where there are no reasonably ascertainable indication of a tax indications of the taxpayer's income, usually because the taxpayer was in some form of cash business and did not maintain records, the IRS can resort to a statistical method designed to extrapolate some reasonable amount of income based on the income from similarly situated taxpayers or using industry statistics. A quick and dirty example here is where the taxpayer is a waiter at a certain type of club and the IRS has a regional statistic that shows that the average tip for a particular type of restaurant is X number of dollars. The IRS may attempt some extrapolation. Um, now for penalties. The IRS has an initial burden of production. The IRS can meet this burden by producing some reasonable evidence that it is appropriate to impose the relevant penalty. Assuming the IRS meets that burden, the taxpayer then has the burden of persuading the court that he is not liable for the penalty. So just my two cents here. Um, the shift of these burdens is rarely outcome determinative, and that's because most cases are resolved by the judge making an affirmative finding as to the existence um, or non-existence of a key fact. In other words, judges are making their findings of fact based on affirmative persuasion and not based on these burden of proof default rules. We have other courts, too, that I feel we should um, just give a broad overview of um, where a 
civil tax controversy could be docketed, uh, there's a federal district court, there's a court of federal claims, and there's the bankruptcy court. And I'm going to talk just briefly about each type. The federal district court is um, a, a court that hears uh, the following, uh, typically hears the following types of tax cases. First, refund suits involving the merits of whether the taxpayer owes the tax or penalty. Second, summons enforcement actions. And third, collection suits when the IRS chooses to go beyond its administrative enforcement powers. So the types of cases that we're talking about, practically speaking, are fraud cases, excise cases, and jeopardy assessments. So how about refund suits? In order to bring a refund suit, the taxpayer is obligated to pay the tax liability up front and then file a claim for refund. So this circles back to what I was talking about earlier, that in other courts, such as a federal district court, the taxpayer actually has to pay the, the tax liability up front before he gets access to the court. Um, so that's a pretty big difference, especially if the tax liability is six figures um, or more. Um, so it's very important to uh, sit down and talk with your client up front and let them know what the barriers to entry might be to a special to a specific court. And in this case, as I said, a refund suit requires in federal court requires the taxpayer to pay the tax liability up front and file a claim for refund. Once it is disallowed, the taxpayer has jurisdiction to file a suit for refund in the district court. The taxpayer can get a jury trial in district court. Um, and what's interesting here is that we're talking about bench trials in U.S. tax court, not jury trials. But again, the taxpayer can get a jury trial in district court. What a taxpayer should be made aware of is that district court judges are not well-versed in tax law. Um, or I should take this a step further and say not as well versed in tax law as the tax court judges are. Um, tax court judges uh, typically tend to be experts in tax procedure and tax law because that's um, they're in the trenches every day. And so even if they don't have any formal tax uh, law background, they generally get up to speed very quickly because that's the 100% of their docket is tax court cases, whereas district court cases deal with a disproportionate less number of tax cases. And my experience is that they tend to not want to even touch a tax court case unless they absolutely have to. Court of Federal Claims. This court is authorized to hear tax refund suits. It's a relatively informal court, and it operates much like the tax court. Bankruptcy court. Um, in bankruptcy court, federal tax issues can arise, although it's not always very frequent. Uh, bankruptcy courts have jurisdiction to determine tax issues such as liability for taxes and, of course, dischargeability. And when it comes to a bankruptcy court having jurisdiction to determine a tax issue, um, again, the, it, again, it might be a situation where there's liability for the tax, but it's important to emphasize here that the liability cannot have previously been litigated. It has to be a fresh issue that has not already been heard. Bankruptcy court. 
uh, further. If a debtor has a tax proceeding pending in another court, like a tax court, the automatic stay provisions of the bankruptcy court will give the bankruptcy court the opportunity to determine where the litigation of the tax liability will proceed. So that's interesting um, to the extent that the taxpayer slash to the extent that the debtor has a an action that's pending in bankruptcy court and at the same time has a tax court uh, proceeding pending um, at the same time the automatic stay provisions of the bankruptcy court will give the bankruptcy court the opportunity to determine the forum or where the litigation of the tax liability will occur. So that's really interesting because I suppose hypothetically that the bankruptcy court could actually change um, the jurisdiction uh, or the court um, where the tax proceeding um, is uh, is heard. Um, so if even if the debtor has a tax proceeding pending in a specific court like the tax court um, to the extent that there's a bankruptcy petition that's pending uh, theoretically the bankruptcy court could um, change that venue although I don't think that that's something that would be very common but um, it appears as though the uh, rules of bankruptcy court permit it. The bankruptcy court may also allow the pending proceeding to continue in order to have the other court resolve the tax issue or may resolve the tax issue itself. So what that's saying is that, you know, the bankruptcy court may just take a hands-off approach and allow, in this example, the U.S. tax court to resolve the tax issue, or the bankruptcy court may usurp um, jurisdiction of the tax proceeding matter and resolve that tax issue on its own. If you have any, this brings us to the end of the presentation. If you have any further questions, please feel free to reach out for me anytime. Um, my email address is usually the best way of reaching me. It's um, mjdebliss, D-E-B-L-I-S, at theblisslaw.com. And I always welcome questions or comments as I'm always looking to improve the presentation. Uh, so thank you for taking the opportunity and I uh, hope that you got something out of this.